If you're doing something that really few others are doing, then I think content marketing can be extremely valuable. But if your niche is, you know, women or business owners, you know, retirees or something like that, I just don't know how successful content market is going to be. I mean, because you're competing with 10,000 other advisors who have the same niche. You're listening to your financial planner. Now what the podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers and the lives of their clients. Welcome back for episode 130. Today's guest specializes in cross-border financial planning, chiefly working with Australian expats here in the United States. Ashley Murphy, CFP, has built his practice on this specialization and by focusing on being the best planner he can be. He believes that planners who specialize find more success when growing their businesses and we hope you enjoy this episode. Straight ahead, Ashley shares the difference between specialization and niche marketing and how this could be your future in financial planning. Well, thanks for joining us, Ashley. It's a pleasure to be here, Hannah. I'm happy to uh, to chat, excited to chat. Yes, well, it is a long time coming to have you on this podcast, so I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Tell me, how did you first get into financial planning? Wow, what, what a question. Um, you know, I think I was destined to be a financial planner. When I look back, I'm like, oh my God, I just ignored sign after sign. Um, Essentially, I think it was 1999, I started reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, was getting interested in investing, and uh, then moved to the United States for the first time and um, just, you know, just sat in on on these sorts of uh, presentations and, and was really excited by it. But in my own head, I couldn't disentangle entrepreneurship with personal finance, like it, it was all the same thing to me. Um, anyway, I, I went back to Australia, a, a, a family tragedy occurred, I came into a settlement and all of a sudden I had some money of my own to invest and, and this was peculiar because I had been sitting in on, on classes I wasn't enrolled at in university and going to the stock exchange and you know just really actively involved but I felt like this was, this was an adult amount of money and if I handled it well then it could make a big difference to my life going forward, uh, which which I I happened to to um, to wear that one with a badge of honor because it, it always irks me and rubs me the wrong way whenever you hear older planners talk about it. well you could never give a twenty year old you know hundred thousand or two hundred that would blow it for sure you know and it's like no not true not everyone does that necessarily uh, anyway th- so th- these were all indicators these you know Kiyosaki and the interest in these topics and I started an investment club um, but the way things were I'm, I'm from Australia the way things were Australia at that time were very poor from a from a regulatory point of, point of view so it was very much a sales focused industry and it was difficult to find a, an advisor that really would represent your interests and not their company's interests. So it planted a seed, but it, it also was inconceivable to me um, that I would become a financial advisor. It was like I could become a shoe salesman, you know, a car salesman or a financial, like it, it would all have been the same thing. So it was completely closed off to me. So it's interesting. You're talking about in Australia, it kind of had that very heavy sales culture. It, it was not professionalized at all. It was, you know, it was the last bastion of, People that maybe graduated high school, you know, that wanted an office job, they could either choose to go into, you know, real estate or become a financial advisor. You know, it was it was of that sort of cachet. But now, with some reforms, some major, major, major reforms, Australia's gone from 
being way behind to being way ahead. And now as a result of uh, a royal commission and this thing called FASIA, the Financial Advisor Standards and Ethics Association, uh, they've made it so that financial advisors now are protected, a legally protected term. You have to have a relevant undergraduate degree. You have to do uh, uh, supervised training and then these ethics court, like it's really rigorous and it's causing a whole shakeup in the industry over there. So they've, they've really professionalized what it means to be a financial advisor. Absolutely. And I would say within five years, the, that reputation in the broader market will have disappeared. I I just was at the FPA, the, the Australian FPA conference a month ago. And, uh, and, and it's, it's ground zero right now for this, this Royal commission and these, these reforms are all coming to a head right now. And so Many of these old advisors are just like, I, I'm not dealing with this. I'm not going to go back to school and and do you know these these courses again. And understandably, and that's fine. And now what we're seeing is many respectable undergraduate uh, universities are offering um, degrees in financial planning, and it's fantastic to see. You know, I I, I don't know when that occurred in law or accounting, but. I imagine there was a moment, you know, decades ago when it went from being just something that was trained by, a, you know, some someone with a lot of experience in an office that was, you know, it led to grading consistency between one professional and another to then becoming, you know, pre- legally protected and professionalized. And, and that's what's happening there. And so are they professionalizing like true financial planning or is it just also just what is it investing like investment management? Like, do they make the distinction between planning and investment management? Yeah, that that's a great question, Hannah. Re- really good question, um, and, and and the answer is yes, they do. They they've gone too far, in my opinion. I, I actually don't like what they've done. Where a financial plan is practically templated, you know, meaning you haven't done a financial plan, what they call a statement of advice. You haven't done a statement of advice unless you've included this, 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 and this, and it's all very good. It's don't get me wrong. It's not like. Um, it's irrelevant. I'm not saying that. It's more that in the professional experience that I've had, clients come to you because they trust you. They tr- they trust you that you know what you're doing, that you've got your their best interests at heart. Uh, and they don't want to hear every little in and out of how you arrived at your recommendations. And the way that they've gone in Australia is to force you to disclose that. So you're talking about voluminous appendices you know, with every cash flow assumption used and this and that. And and while I'm not registered in Australia, thus I've never delivered a statement of advice in Australia, uh, I would imagine just like here, no one has ever, other than maybe the most uh, uh, pernicious engineers, have actually read, you know, those financial plans cover to cover. So they've gone too far. And I, I'm a big believer in delivering financial advice at the pace that people are ready to assimilate it, you know, and you can't just dump uh, the, the way we practice is to deliver recommendations in, in kind of bite-sized modules. So, you know, each meeting with a sufficient break between meetings, it's like, here's this recommendation. You need to go and do this. And it's going to take, you know, between a full-time job, a family and all you know, the other commitments that one has in life, it's going to take a month or two to be able to open these accounts or consolidate that 401k or, or get this disability insurance policy or whatever the case may be. We're going to get back to your 
your career path, I promise. But I'm, I'm so still interested in this Australia um, model almost. Have they seen impacts on the general public be- with these regulations? Like has financial literacy increased across Australia? Or are, I mean, are there any metrics to say that more people are saving for retirement or have, you know, are in a better financial state because of these regulations? Well, that's Hannah. I love talking to you. We have these great organic conversations. Um, the answer to that is multifaceted. It's too soon to say because of these regulations, simply because the ramifications of the Royal Commission are not yet felt because the final recommendations aren't due out until next February 2019. Um, so too soon for that one. There have been pr- relatively frequent regulatory changes over the past decade, most notably with what was called the future of financial advice, where in 2012, I believe mid-2012, these new uh, regulations came out, which uh, essentially enshrined a, they don't call it fiduciary, but it is the same thing. It's best interests duty, which is maybe a better term, I might add. You know, it's, it's. I mean, I'm, I'm all for fiduciary. I am a fiduciary, fee only, whatever. But uh, it's, it can be a little esoteric, that word for some people. Whereas if you just say best interest, simple as that, you know, you treat uh, my clients like, a, you know, the same recommendations and tender loving care I'd give to my own mother's, you know, financial plan. Um, I think that that word is a little more accessible. So they reduced uh, commissions on financial products. And what, when I, it's nitpicking, but the use of the term financial products would mean not insurance. So you can still be paid insurance, uh, although they be paid a commission on insurance, but they changed how commissions are paid. So much more even, like paid over a number of years and not upfront to reduce churn. Uh, that was a really big problem. You know, someone would sell a whole life policy or equivalent thereof, a whole life policy, and then two years later uh, sell them a different one because it paid a big fat commission all over again. Whereas now, uh, they've pretty much eliminated the the incentive to do that, uh, but but I was saying they've eliminated commissions on financial products. And what I mean by financial products is the U.S. definition being uh, anything where there is uh, the, the the possibility of uh, there's an investment with a possibility of gain or loss. So commissions on mutual funds or any other uh, you know REIT or or whatever that's gone away. So it's now created a very interesting universe of what they call fee-for-service, where unlike in the United States where it's impossible, it's illegal to separate the commission on a, an insurance product uh, from the, the underlying policy itself. It's all one and the same. Uh, in Australia, you can do that. So you have these really interesting business models where people say, um, I will do your insurance, but because it's going to take many hours to do that work and my professional expertise to make that judgment, uh, I'm still going to charge you. I'm just, I'm not going to charge you a commission. I'm going to charge you something based more on time or value. Um, but it's a commission free, a truly commission free insurance product. And so insurance products have become unbundled there, which is, uh, which is great. I, I think. So do you see AUM models over in Australia or is it mainly like hourly rate? models you do and i want to i'll come back to that hannah i apologize you know what i got carried away with my previous thought and i wanted to mention something else so um 
the, the, the your previous question was to do with uh, have these regulations made a big impact on things and they uh, saving for retirement specifically was was what you asked so in 1992 they made in fact beginning i think it was in the 80s mid 80s they made some changes that, uh, which and then were finalized in the early 90s uh, to do with the retirement system and what they mandated which it's according to uh, various uh, think tanks around the world. It's Australia's retirement system is rated as one of the best, uh, top three apparently. Uh, it, they've mandated at an employer level a 9.5% increasing uh, over the next eight years or something uh, and capping out eventually in 2025 at 12% uh, of someone's full-time ordinary earnings. So no, no if ands, or buts, if you satisfy f- fairly low standards for being an employee, your employer must contribute that into your what's called a superannuation fund, which is a retirement fund. You could think of it like a cross between Social Security and a 401k. Um, it's, it's important. It's yet again, maybe too much in the weeds, but I find this sort of, I'm kind of a nerd for it and I find it interesting. Unlike Social Security, which um, uh, you know, keep in mind, I'm a patriot. I'm saying this with a lot of love for the U.S., but also, you know, somewhat distanced given that I, I see multiple systems trying to accomplish the same goals. Um, the, the U.S. Social Security system is is unfunded and it's not in your name. So you don't have a personal account and there's no guarantee on your future benefit because the Social Security tax is just paid into a big general fund that then is paid out to current recipients. Whereas uh, superannuation, you have your 9.5% plus your uh, your other uh, contributions that you can make, kind of like uh, pre-tax, post-tax here, you know, with like a 401k versus a Roth 401k, very similar concept to that. Your account is in your name. And so it's relatively generous in its funding, um, but not different. If you think about it, I'm actually just thinking of this for the first time now, so which is which is embarrassing. But if you think about the Social Security tax that you pay and your employer contribution, and if your if your company offers a 401k, they already are contributing that much and more to, or you are at least. And if there's a three percent match, then it's a it's pretty much right at nine point five percent. So they're already doing it. It's just happening in an unprotected way in the U.S., whereas in Australia, it goes into your account, you can choose the investments, you can choose the investment manager, and it's there for your retirement. So people have, on average, they have bigger retirement balances, but the benefits cap out now at $1.65 million, which sounds like a nice, uh, you know, healthy balance to achieve. That's also at an individual level, so you and your spouse could have that much, uh, which would, you know, in theory provide for a pretty healthy retirement. But this is the the big but. Um, there is no social security equivalent. There is an, what they call an aged pension. So maybe I misspoke. Maybe there is a social security pension. But if it's, if it's skimpy here, it's even skimpier in Australia. It is a bare bones uh, pension amount. It is bare bones. So they make it very attractive from a, both a tax and from an employer contribution to to contribute to superannuation, so so people do build up decent sized balances, but um, they're really encouraged to to 
to mind their pot because if it runs out, then uh, you know they'll be they'll be doing it pretty hard. You know, it's so interesting hearing how other countries kind of approach some of the same issues, um, and just with that different filter or that different lens. And if you're dealing with an Australian client, that has huge implications on their plan. You know, versus versus you know like a U.S. client, they don't have the social security backdrop, if you would. It's actually funny, and and like I always have to throw in this caveat that I'm not some uh, you know, uh, disloyal citizen of the U.S. or whatever. It's it's just that I kind of straddle these multiple cultures and so see it differently. It it is kind of silly if you think about it that Bill Gates and and Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett already, Bill Gates someday uh, will receive the Social Security. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? You know that the the wealthiest people in the world are qualifying for this aged care benefit like why wouldn't we just coordinate that with the tax system so that it encourages it incentivizes savings and then provides kind of a disincentive if you don't save um you know of course that gets complicated and the devil's in the detail but um yeah just just an observation yeah, it's it's really it's so fascinating to think of what 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 if financial planners really spoke to policy issues of today? I mean, like there's just a whole world out there that we can really have influence and and really help the general public. Absolutely. When that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was being debated a year ago, I remember thinking, "Oh my god, are you are you kidding me? They're talking about that there was discussion, I don't know how serious it ever got, but about eliminating 401k's, you know." <laughs> it's like are you kidding me? I mean, we already have a, a pretty uh, meager retirement system, and to re- to eliminate one of the last and 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 greatest tax breaks that encourages, you know, really productive behavior on behalf of of uh, of the citizens, um, it would just make no sense. I want to go back to your career your career path. So you find yourself in the United States. You have some money now to invest. You've been researching, you have this investment club. What happens next in your story? Well, thank you for keeping me uh, in in line there. I'm, I'm kind of known for my ability to wander from interesting idea to interesting idea. Uh, so yeah, moved in, uh, traveled around the world for six months, uh, moved to the Bay Area in 2005. It is important at this time, just to set some context here, I am a tri-citizen of UK, Australia, and the US, and have been since birth. So uh, it's taken me, it's funny, it's been about a year since I had this observation, this realization about myself, but um, people will instinctively come to me and say, oh, you're an Australian, and and or you're a this, or you're that. And uh, actually, that's not true. No, I am an American. My mother's American. Half of my family is American. You know, I've got the Midwestern uncle, you know. I am a f- com- completely American. I just happen to also have these other identities as well. So the reason I mention that is because I moved to the Bay Area in 2005 as a citizen, never went through any visas, green cards, nothing. Uh, so that's all been education for me to learn what others uh, go through with that. Um, but uh, my brothers, two of my brothers are already uh, over here. Uh, and I, I got a job working as a corporate financial analysts are doing essentially budgets and forecasts at a company level. And I found, I think I wandered into that uh, on a sort of on a subconscious level. There's a theme that you might be picking up here. I I guess I was quite status conscious 
in my early 20s, I wanted to do something high income, highly respected. So, uh, of course, I couldn't be a financial advisor. That was just just deep class A and and uh, and, and and not not something uh, that, that that was appropriate. So I, I became a financial analyst, uh, which was a fantastic way to develop, you know, misery and and you know hate my job. And you know, even though I made a lot of money. Um, you know, was was living the high life in the Bay Area. You know, in my mid twenties, uh, I I pretty soon, within four years, had the decision made for me. Um, I got fired. I, I I love how Alan Moore talks about getting fired. He's kind of empowered me to tell what was otherwise a shameful story. But now I feel it's it's been gosh eleven years since that happened, and uh, I can now look back and say that was that was the event that caused me to become a financial planner. So I, I thought I had taken the last job of my life, this boutique investment bank doing um, financing on aircraft and you know, so fancy, so prestigious, but I hated it. It was the worst job imaginable. Um, your performance was measured by your hours in the office, not by what you did and how much you brown nosed the boss. Uh, so I was, not cut out for that. And I lasted, I think, two months and 29 days. And then they let me go right before my three months was up. And they would have owed the recruiting firm, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. So uh, anyway, that was early 2008. I started doing, I started reading a bunch of books and going to, you know, having informational interviews and just doing everything I could. I was like, I am so sick of starting at the bottom I, I want to find my career. You know, once and for all, what am I going to be? And it was not until I went to an information session, UC Berkeley Extension, where they were talking about their CFP program, which coincidentally ended up being as much of an advertisement for being an RIA as doing the CFP program, um, that I saw the light. The angels sang, you know, the scales fell from my eyes. And I thought, oh, my God, this is it. This is how to be. Uh, have, have a fiduciary obligation, work as a professional, same side of the table, independent, you know, not, not trying to push the product of any particular provider. It was, it just was fantastic. It all came together. So um, that was early 2000 and uh, I, I may have misspoke, excuse me, it was a little over a decade ago. That was early 2008. Uh, so then I began the CFP classes late 2008 then I started on the CFA in 2009, and that was a really bad time to try and get into the business because there was double-digit unemployment, and we had the worst economic crisis since the Great uh, Depression. So after 140 job applications, uh, come May, uh, correction, April of 2010, I ended up getting a job at a family insurance office, a family insurance office that, that found a convenient way to sell uh, other financial services, all the while, you know, life insurance was and disability insurance was really the the primary uh, product there. Uh, I would not have chosen to work there as my first job, but it actually turned out to be about the best first job I could have ever asked for, uh, and I mean that seriously. So I learned all about various types of insurance and um, annuities. And got to go to the broker dealer conferences, and went to FBA conferences, got my licenses, did the CFP study, uh, and basically learnt how sixteen different advisors ran their business. And there was a lot of really great instruction, a lot of you know practices that I wouldn't 
have um, chosen to repeat and didn't repeat in starting my own firm. Uh, so I, I stayed there for two and a half years, and then um, I I decided it was time. September first, two thousand and two, was time to venture out on my own, and I thought I could do it at my broker dealer. I'd have a whole pass, you know. I was one of the the good old boys. Like they knew me for a couple of years, and they knew I was a good guy, whatever. Um, but it turns out I didn't have a whole pass. They after less than three months. It's kind of a recurring theme here, right? With less than three months. Uh, they said, you know what? You're really not selling enough annuities or insurance. You know, your GDC is not where it needs to be. Uh, you know, we got to put you on some sort of performance plan or something. And so that, to, to me, the writing was on the wall. And that was when I said, okay, I got to go start my own thing. And and uh, I took the first half of 2012 to get my REA registration through. Uh, that sounds like an awfully long time and it, and it, I guess it was, but in California, keep in mind, it really does take three months for them to um, to even approve your application. So um, this was mid-2013, and I was very good friends with Sophia Berra at the time. And um, Sophia was friends with Mary Beth and uh, who else? I invited Alan into uh, a study group. And, oh, and uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, Sophia was also friends with Eric Rebersch. So we started the study group together and we're all young, independent REAs sort of, you know, with, with, with the same kind of thinking about independence and uh, working with clients virtually and so forth. And then Alan had the idea, hey, you know, we can't be the only ones around that are, that are experiencing these. And from that, he launched XY Planning Network and he's had just incredible success with that, which, which I'm very, very proud of, of him. Um, and we've all gone on to, to succeed in our own ways. It's uh, it's really, really striking. I I wrote an email to Michael Kitsis a few weeks ago after I saw Eric had been interviewed and said, that's, what is it? It's like four or five people from our study group. I'm the only one that hasn't been. Um, and that's perhaps due to my own insecurities about wanting to claim success. Uh, but, but uh, you know, I think I've done I've done incredibly well also. Now, did you always know that you were going to go down this entrepreneur path? Like, was that part of kind of your vision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hannah, you you just asked, the, you go from one great question to the next. So, yes, there, there was more detail in in all of that prior story than, than what I led on to. So, as, as I first, the very, very first thing I mentioned was about reading Kiyosaki and being in the United States in late 1999 was the the, the height of the tech boom. So, I was very much into entrepreneurship, worked for uh, a couple startups, and then straight out of college, that was the first thing I did before leaving the, uh, for the US in early 2005 was I had a funded startup, wrote business plans, you know, I was the youngest finalist in this big competition back in Australia. So I was very much and, and have always had a strong inkling to entrepreneurship, which I've brought into my financial planning practice. So. Uh, all the while that I was a financial ad, uh, analyst back in the Bay Area, I also had dabbled in a, in a couple startups too. So, um, I when I launched as a as an advisor, I, I had a business plan, and you know I went about it very much as a, as an entrepreneur would go about it, um, and continue to to this day. So you know there are new ventures, kind of new ideas that I've got all the time. In fact, last week was the culmination of. Uh, of an idea, maybe not the culmination, that's an overstatement, but it was 
it was a major milestone last week. I launched it. What's, what's astounded me, Hannah is, and continues to astound me is how there it is that there does not exist a multidisciplinary group of professionals, let's say estate planners, CPAs, trustees, insurance people, bankers, financial advisors that deal with the personal financial lives of expats. It's, it's incredible. There's nothing of the sort. There's a group called STEP, the Society of Trust and Estate Planners. There's Wealth Council. Both are very estate planning oriented. Uh, there's a chapter within the AICPA that deals with this. But there's nothing that's cross-disciplinary that brings us all together, that lets us, sh- us share the different perspectives that we have. So I thought, if it doesn't exist, I'll start it myself, kind of like I did back in uh, college with the investment club. Uh, where I started that and grew that to a couple hundred members. So um, I don't know what future this idea has because I'm not at this stage of my life, much like yourself with young children. I'm not too keen on, you know, having a super busy travel schedule. But uh, anyway, last week was the first meeting of the, uh, the the group that is tentatively called. It will probably change names for reasons I may describe, but tentatively called the Forum for Expatriate Finance. And uh, it's, a, it's a Minnesota professional group, and uh, we met, and we, we had representation from from basically all the different professionals I just listed, uh, and that came about from networking and finding them on LinkedIn and just sending a cold email like, "Hey, this should exist. It doesn't. Let's get together and start it, and this could be incredible." And so here we are. You made a comment about how looking at of the venture capital and that and that entrepreneur lens and how that was different and that helped you. And I know you know many financial planners who start their own firms, but what's kind of that different perspective or that different lens that you see? Like do you have a distinction for that? I do. I think the 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 it was it's both a help and a hindrance. Uh, the help was being crafting a business plan, but being overly analytical about it. You know, I it was if if you're if you were intending on starting a highly scalable business, you know where you're going to end up having multiple locations and layers of staff and whatever, then a huge business plan might make sense. But I I kind of feel I suffered and still do from analysis paralysis, where it's easy to get lost in the weeds and think about the minutia, and that's really not necessary at this level because really what we do is not that scalable. You know you've got your 50 to 100 clients that you can handle, and that's that. Uh, there's a great term I use. I came across in one of my early informational interviews, which I'm surprised hasn't caught on and isn't in wider use, but uh, there's a gentleman with a, with a very successful firm in, in uh, Palo Alto who referred to high-grading his book, as in migrating upwards, um, it, which was you know, his goal for growth, is raise the minimum and raise the accounts and high-grade it. And, you know, that's one of the various strategies you can employ. But uh, anyway, I, so, so having a plan certainly helpful, but I think a one-page business plan is really all you need. And, and the best thing you could do is stop staring at your navel, stop, you know, thinking about every little resource that you might purchase so as to facilitate your growth and just get out there and do it. And so I've tried to apply that. Um, the the benefit it provided was 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 on the finance side, which which sounds funny. You, you know, we um, feel like I'm overusing the word finance, but coming from a corporate background, 
I, I really was extremely rigorous and still am on the cash flow side. And that stuck with me yet again, for better or worse, with how I do personal financial planning. I don't think there's any separating. Uh, in fact, I, this, is, this is throwing the fat in the fire, might start a fight, but, but here goes, you know, for the improvement of, and betterment of the profession as a whole. I, I don't think you're doing financial planning if you're not getting into the cash flow. Um, I, I think you just have to because the way people's spending patterns change over their lives, you just have to understand it. Of course, we don't have a crystal ball, don't know, you know exactly what someone's going to be doing in 30 years, but doesn't it make sense to work with the best information that you have available? You know, to say, oh, you've got kids now, they're going to move out approximately when they're, let's say, 22, so therefore there's support that's gone away for them. Uh, a mortgage will eventually be paid off, you know, so we can take that out of it. Anyway, you get the idea. So I was able to in- incorporate that understanding of cash flow into planning for my future. So I, 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 I'm not ashamed to say that I had a side hustle for – it's sort of a diminishing side hustle. It was, it was kind of more involved uh, in the first year and less involved in the second year and then uh, I think went away entirely by the third year. Um, uh, so – understanding this is what i think the number one error and it's not just i shouldn't say i think i know the number one error because we've heard it from xy planning networks uh annual surveys the number one error advisors make that go out independently is they might do a fine budget and forecast for what business expenses look like but fail to fully uh, appreciate their personal expenses so they don't realize oh you actually do need two years of personal expenses in addition to whatever business expenses you need to get going. Now, there's going to be some revenue in there and that's going to offset uh, some of that, but the, p- people don't seem to have such a, a, a delineation between the personal and the, the corporate side of, of finance. You have this great plan, this great background to start approaching financial planning. What did it look like when you first started your business? I essentially took the approach that if if you could fog a mirror, you're a good prospect for me. Um, and, you know, so consequently, I ended up with this motley crew of clients, you know, all, all over the demographic page, um, which I've since had to cull and refine and, and focus my, my scope uh, over the years, which which in a separate thread, you know, maybe we'll get to this, maybe we won't. Um, I think it's another form of raising your minimum is just narrowing your scope. It doesn't have to be a fee increase. You just say, I'm not going to work with people that are outside of my target market any longer. That's it. High grading. Thank you for catching on. Yeah, that's a great one. That's I'm sure the, the originator of that, uh, who was a professor in that CFA program, he would, he would love to hear that, I'm sure. Um, so what was it when I started? Uh, I was fee-based, you know, in other words, commission and fees, uh, which which was fine, made sense, especially when you have a surplus of time and a lack of income, and it made a lot of sense. But um, when did I – I think I was four years in and went fee-only, and I had a bunch of informational interviews with, with other advisors, and they said – the, the amount of referrals you'll get from NAPFA and from other sources and just economy of scope from just focusing on that one area will pay for itself in, in about a year. And that's, that's actually been true and false. So it's, it's caused me no end of frustration that as soon as I joined NAPFA, 
I pick up on this thread, which you may be aware of, Hannah, I'm not, I'm not sure, but there's been a very, very loud and ongoing thread with tremendous dissatisfaction represented by the members of NAPFA about how they've botched their new find an advisor uh, search, which happened exactly when I joined. So I think in the in the 18 months that I've been for you, I've had two inquiries ever through the find an advisor portal, um, which is actually fine because I'm getting more and more disciplined about um, about this Aussie expat niche anyway. So my 2019 plan, in, in, in fact, I can say it, you know, look, if we were looking at each other, then I'd look you right in the eye and say, last when, uh, last Friday, a, uh, an office mate here in, in the, the, the building that I'm in, he approached me with, with a fine sounding prospect, a tax manager at Deloitte and his wife. He said, Oh, can you work with them? I said, unless they're a business owner, or Aussie expat, no, sorry. And i I felt good about myself. You know, it's like, talk about sticking to your guns. Uh, and I think the final, final move will be the elimination even of that business owner uh, 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 target market. So uh, it'll just strictly be Aussie expats. And I, th- I think that'll happen sooner than, than, uh, than, I, than, than most might realize. Like mid-next year, I'll, I'll, I'll be at that point where 100% of new clients would be Aussie expats only. Um, so that's that's essentially in, in the shortest I could make it. That's how my business started. So basically, anyone was growing through. Um, this is before XY Planning Network even existed. I was going to BNI Business Network International, uh, giving my one minute pitch every week, um, and that was great. By the way, you know, for someone that didn't know anyone, didn't go to school here, didn't grow up here, how do you build a business with no contacts, no referrals, no nothing? Um, and it was contacting old workmates which that didn't, that wasn't that successful for me, largely because it's in a pretty non-internal uh, in, uh, client-facing role within the, the companies that I worked at, so I didn't actually meet that many people anyway. Um, but B&I worked well, so, so I would uh, applaud that. Uh, and then, you know, I've learned a tremendous amount in the last year. Like my business has doubled, Hannah. I, it's been absolutely incredible. Um, in the past year, it's doubled due to a combination of things. But what I've learned is um, content marketing. And I, I think I could say something very valuable about that. And, and that is if, if you really have a niche that's truly unique, and, and there are a few of them out there, but uh, if, you, if you're doing something that really few others are doing, then I think content marketing can be extremely valuable. But if you're, if you're, you know, your niche is, you know, women or uh, even I say that tongue in cheek, by the way, <laughs> a majority of being a niche is kind of silly. Um, I, I'm tr- actually trying to come up with generic niches, but which is why I said that, uh, or business owners, you know, or retirees or something like that. I just, I just don't know how successful content market is going to be. I mean, because you're competing with 10,000 other advisors who have the same um, niche. So that's, yeah, I, I think that you've got to balance your marketing mix between in-person networking, uh, online presence, uh, and, um, and, and content as well. Like really show that you know what you're, you're doing and that you're an expert in what you're doing. Yeah, well, you don't get much more niche than Aussie expats. 
Well, it's funny you say that, and thank you. I, I should thank you yet again for such a great question. Uh, there's been a thread that's been going on XY Planning Network now for, for about nine months, and I think it's been resolved. It was resolved offline, so no one would have actually seen what was resolved of it, but I can fill you in here. So um, there was there was a, a lady from the Pacific Northwest who I've got a lot of respect for. I think she's she's a real up-and-coming planner. Meg Bartelt was her name. Um, and she she kind of she 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 did something uh, that 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 uh, provoked an interesting reaction from me, which maybe we'll get to. Maybe we won't exactly what that was, but um, she, she essentially said, "Oh, you, your niche is Aussie expats. Mine is women in tech." And and I replied back respectfully, and I said. There's a difference. This, this is there, yes, Aussie expats is a niche, and yes, women and expats is a niche. But Aussie expats is not just a niche; it's a specialization. And that might sound all high and mighty, and uh, it's not my intent. But let's think about it. Is there anything in the CFP curriculum that talks about cross-border international? No, there's nothing. So, is there anything in there that talks about? Oh, not anything. Is there much in there that talks about special needs planning or? It used to be before DOMA was repealed, uh, same-sex relationships, uh, special needs, if I didn't mention that already. I think I did, actually. Um, Late-stage college planning, uh, international. The, the, my point in enumerating this list is these are professional specializations. They're not just niches. As, and what's the difference between a professional specialization? You couldn't, if you didn't have specific knowledge, you couldn't even identify the problems. That's, so I was, it, it, it took every bit of uh, wordsmithing to, to write an email and say, I've got women in tech clients. Like the fact that that's your niche, that's great. And you probably, I'm not saying you don't do a better job. You might do a better job than me. Maybe. That's not for sure uh, because we haven't completely, it, uh, who knows how you'd even compare that, by the way, just as I think about it. But the thing is, I know the questions to ask. I, I'm not a woman. But I have worked in tech. I have a woman's name, but maybe and maybe that's some advantage. But uh, <laughs> um, I think that's probably gotten me a few uh, appointments that <laughs> that I might not have otherwise have gotten. But 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 my point is, if I was working with a woman in tech, who's to say whether that particular person is more comfortable with a man or a woman? You know, totally individual. Um, but I know about RSUs. I know about options. I know about this. I know about that. I know what it's like to work in that environment. Um, so I don't, I, I wouldn't refer now I would, but previously I wouldn't have referred that on. I wouldn't have said, Oh, this is in violation of the CFP and FPA code of ethics to do with, um, competence, you know, and, and it just isn't, you know, I know the questions, I know what I'm doing. I know who I'm dealing with. I've got all the information and I don't think I'm uh, wandering into a, a minefield territory, whereas international, it's. It, I certainly don't know everything there is to know. I mean, it's it's embarrassing. I can talk for a minute before I realize I'm into a topic that I know very little about. I'm just preparing right now, actually, for uh, a webinar I'm doing tomorrow night on estate planning. And I just my clients are younger, and I don't know a ton about. I don't know much about on the domestic front either, to be honest. Um, so I'm learning all about the 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 estate planning side of. We're not all about it. I'm doing it. It's an introductory program. But d d my 
a perfect example of this would be, do people even realize that if you have a non-resident, or okay, what's the definition of residency? There's two definitions. There's tax and there's, there's legal definitions. So if someone is not a legal resident, not a citizen, not a green card holder of the U.S., the, the estate tax treatment, the gift tax treatment is completely different. That's one tiny example. Uh, what would you do if you saw a client who had a mutual fund that was registered in the U.K. or Australia? Would you even know that there's such a thing as a passive foreign investment corporation? I mean, people, that's my point. You don't even know that stuff. How would you advise that client get out of that? So how do you invest in a way that's PFIC compliant? That's that's my point. It's there's there's niches, and the 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 Aussie expat niche I'm in is 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 yes, it's a niche, but it's also a professional specialty, and that needs to be uh, delineated from from simple marketing niches where there is efficiency and there is a deeper knowledge that someone may have in in having dealt with many clients before, but it's not specialized knowledge. There's no this, this, no is an easy argument to, to win. You need only one exception. But there are few questions that someone, that, that a CFP wouldn't know in encountering, uh, you know, a woman in tech or a, an airline pilot or, you know, some of the other pretty dentists or, you know, whatever, the, 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 these uh, niches that you hear about. They're not professional specialties. There's just, they're just not. You know, and I don't mean to diminish anyone's work. I'm just saying there is a difference, you know, between a specialty and uh, and a niche. Well, what I'm so fascinated by is, you know, looking at the complexities of, you know, multi, it's not multicultural, but it's, you know, <laughs> different. I keep catching myself on that. But, you know, working within like different countries and working, like how do those countries work together? And I know, um I think I had a simplistic view before I really started talking to you um, more in depth, but can you talk about, I mean, you deal with Aussie expats. Can you talk about like the complexities of their, their situation? You know, so much of what the CFP is, you know, just it's so you know when to ask more questions. Um, And I feel like this is really important for, for planners listening. Yeah, absolutely. So I've devised a taxonomy to do with with international and cross border planning. You'll note just then I said international and cross border, and that's that is the taxonomy right there. So international is really broken up between expats, people that have migrated uh, away from the United States, so American expats, and what I call tongue in cheek impats, so people that have moved to the United States. The problem set that an American expat will have, whether they live in Australia or Austria or Germany or Zimbabwe or wherever, is pretty similar from the US side. Of course, they will have their home country issues, which only someone with knowledge of that home market could deal with. Uh, but if you're dealing with with an American expat, you, there's, as, I, as I said a second ago, there is a, a, a pretty uh, consistent problem set that they're going to face, depending on their marital status, their property ownership, uh, whether their age, whether they vested in Social Security, et cetera, et cetera. Um, an impact, on the other hand, is going to have a different problem set, uh, and it's it's actually it's it's too too numerous to begin um, listing what they are. But I think perhaps a good way to attack this topic would be back at that thread that uh, began with Meg Bartelt. So she 
reached out and she said, listen, I've got an Aussie ex, a woman Aussie expat um, uh, who works in tech. Um, I just want some time to ask you some questions about. And I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm about as open source a guy as, you know, it's, it's open to sharing my knowledge and helping as much as I can, but up to a point. And I think everyone's like that, to be honest, you know, you're not going to share the, the, your, your business secrets, are you? Right. So that led to a certain tension that began with that. Comment. I was like, well, you know, hold on a minute, Meg, are, are you, are you confident in even dealing with this person? And the conclusion I've come to is it depends on the degree of their, what I call international complications. If someone moved from a foreign country when they're a teenager or when they're in their you know, early twenties or whatever, they didn't vest in any, they don't have any foreign pensions. They don't have any property overseas. Like they're effectively pretty much just an American citizen, you know, for all intents and purposes. Then I could see, I could easily see, hey, you know what? The, the degree of their international complications is so small that I think a domestic planner could do a fine job. But um, if someone was, say, in their probably starting from their late 20s and absolutely by their late 30s, uh, you're now entering territory where there's, there's just too many questions to uh to begin even even listing them here on the podcast it's okay have you have you got a will in your foreign country is it valid in the US do is it common law or or, uh, or is it a different legal structure uh, do they respect trusts how do trusts tax do they the, the best thing to hold an asset in or the worst thing to hold an asset in are they, is are they pass through entities or are they separate entities that accumulate income within themselves um, how's the tax system there work? You know, have you got a balance in a foreign pension account? Uh, is there, is it even possible to get your foreign retirement account balance over to the United States? How do you do that in the most tax and fee efficient way possible? Um, what's the relative merits of the insurance? Is there something better there? Is there something worse there? Um, then it d depends by the stage of the expat. I, I, I define three stages. There's the the working holiday crowd where they intend on moving back. There's the domicile uncertain where they're here for a – well, they don't know how long they're here for. They're, things are good. They're going to wait and see how the wind blows and whether they come or go. And then there are the permanent movers. And it's really the permanent movers where you're going to have the, 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 the most complexities. Uh, and, and my advice, which is seemingly self-serving, um, is don't try and work with these clients. The, Hannah, I, I want to start a word competition, a word competition. And um, I think we've all been guilty of this at one point or another. There needs to be a word to describe the planner that stretches their professionalism to handle an attractive prospect. Someone comes in the door and they say, listen, I've got a couple million dollars. I've been told that you're really good. You're, you're a great planner. I want to work with you. But I should also mention that I've got a child with special needs. We've got a business and we've got a 401k within the business and we've got this, that property overseas and blah, blah, blah. Can, can you work with us? And I would put it to you that nine planners out of 10 would say, excuse me, did you say $3 million. Um, yep. I think I'm going to work with you. And I, 
I'm going to figure out all those other difficulties because that sounds really good to me. Um, I think there needs to be more of an enforcement mechanism. And the way I should add, this is an interesting aside, um, the FPA and any membership organization is conflicted in their objectives. How do you police that principle of professionalism yet not antagonize your membership base? Because they're trying to grow the membership base, not reduce it, right? Uh, and what they've done, they just announced this at the, the Australian FPA conference uh, a month ago. What they've done over there is they've, they've chartered a separate organization. The FPA there has chartered a separate organization altogether whose job is enforcement. And so, you know, the, the FPA itself can no longer be seen to be the, the, the policeman, you know, the, the, chasing people up. There's now a separate organization whose job is to chase people up, which is great because here it feels like there's no naming and shaming. You know, people just do whatever they want. And, you know, I never, ever, 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 ever hand on my heart set out to become some grouch that said, you know, you shouldn't be dealing. That was never my intention. And I thought that those that were like that were, were you know, like I said before, self-serving. Um, but it really is the case. It's like people, I'll, I'll, I'll set a trap and, and it's, it's well-intentioned, but here's the trap. If someone did come to you and they said, uh, I'm a non-resident Australian, I, you know, live back here, I, you're friend or your whoever told me that you're a great planner i've got one and a half million dollars in a 401k um i I don't want to touch it for 10 years can you manage it okay not nine out of ten ten out of ten planners would say unless they knew better they would say oh yeah i i'm gonna are you kidding me like a, a a plan a 401k can roll over to an ria and just leave it there and let it ride and rebalance it and, you know, invest it appropriately as per that client's needs. But um, hell yeah. Well, no, because you're going to find out that there are practically none, zero, practically, I didn't say zero, but almost zero institutions that would custody a non, what's called uh, a non-resident alien. You know, someone who's not a legal resident of the U.S., who's got that money, who was legally here at one point or another, who's got that money, but you're going to find you cannot go anywhere. And unless you rejig your entire business model to handle that one client, you're going to find out after dozens of hours spent and you know emails and calls, you can't actually handle that client at all. That's what I mean. That's, that's where it's a trap. People fall, but, but I don't want to forget about that word competition, the, the, we need to start to, to to encourage professionalism and get people to swim in their lanes. Yeah. Well, and knowing knowing where you don't know, I think it's such such an important piece. You know, we always talk about what does it take to be a profession, and that's one of the that's one of the places is you know what you don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know what you don't know, but also there's a shift, there's a cultural shift, and I felt it, Hannah. I felt it the strongest I've ever felt it at that the Australian FPA conference a month ago, and you probably think I'm a broken record now with with how many times I've mentioned that. But what struck me was the absence of sales strategies. The absence of sales. There weren't zero sessions that I attended at least. There may have been them, but I didn't even see them. There were zero sessions on how to prospect better or how to do this. It was all about 
how to be a better planner or a better business manager from a client uh, from a compliance perspective it was nothing to do with 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 sales strategies and marketing strategies it was all about you know coming up with better better advice for your clients and that was the first time now i haven't been to a napfa conference i've been to napfa meetings but not a napfa conference um, that was the first time i had i had encountered that and that made me feel like a, a professional well, do you have any final words or thoughts for new planners who are coming into the profession right now? Yeah, I do. Um, I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be getting in. I think um, I think there is a very slow drift towards a fiduciary standard. I think it's inevitable. The, the word has entered the lexicon of most sophisticated uh, prospects that you would want to uh, be dealing with. And it just, it just stands to reason, you know, like, as soon as you learn that someone doesn't, in fact, or is not bound by your best interest, then it's pretty off-putting. Um, so for those for those career changes and for those younger folks listening to this that are thinking about a career in financial planning where you may uh, be uh, geographically bounded, you know, i.e. don't want to move for whatever reason, um, the right opportunities don't come up often. I'll, I'll say that, you know, it's, they're out there, don't get me wrong, but um, I remember in the Bay Area, possibly the most densely concentrated area of REAs in the entire country, one of my former mentors said to me, you know, all you need to do is to find one of these solo REAs that's going through a great growth spurt, hook on with them, and, you know, th- that could be like taking a ladder up, you know, 20, 20 positions on the board, Um and he's right. He's absolutely correct. That's true. It would have been. It's just that there were zero people even in the Bay Area. And I, was, I, I, ended, I already was traveling an hour and 20 minutes each way to get to uh, that job that I was telling you about before. Um, so don't lose the faith. It's kind of field of dreams kind of thing. If you can imagine it, trust your instincts that other people probably want what you can imagine and hold true. And your dream, your vision will be reinforced when you have these informational interviews, when you listen to podcasts, perhaps such as this one, and you hear someone that's basically described a career path that they've lived, that they've done, that you've only dreamt of. And that's what I've done. No one has done what, I've, what I'm doing. And, uh, uh, you know, but I have found there, there are other torchbearers that have, that have, uh, that have come up to, to similar areas. And so... Uh, just continue to, to dream of how you might take the next step and have faith that someone has done it and there is, in fact, a path forward. If you want to be a part of great conversations like these, be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals, from students to firm owners, professors, and FBA board members. You'll find them all there where you too can lend your voice. We hope you'll join us and help grow the financial planning profession. Thanks for listening.